you're listening to Of Sights and Men with Benji and Jacob. A Daily Magician production. Well, hello and welcome back to Of Slights and Men. We're joined by Danny Goldsmith. This is another deep dive with Danny Goldsmith. And today we are dropping into a, a super interesting topic, one that I think all magicians will be interested in, which is card magic. Uh, and this is probably not quite the introduction that you expected, because when, when you think of Danny Goldsmith, um, you, you probably think of his incredible um, coin slides, uh, his amazing projects that he's produced over his lifetime on coin magic and all of the thought and thinking that he's brought to that topic. Um, and so that's kind of today why we thought it'd be really interesting because a lot of people don't know this, but Danny also has put a ton of time into card magic. He's an extremely talented card magician as well. And so Danny, if you could, um, where did your card magic journey all, all kind of begin? What's this kind of behind the scenes story that nobody really knows about? <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for the nice introduction. Um, I started card magic at the same time I started coin magic 20 years ago. And, but for me, you know, I loved coin magic. I loved how visual it could be. I loved how simple it could be in terms of what it is the spectators are wanting to follow, you know, their attention span is just on a coin, a couple coins, you know, it's not 52 pieces of paper. So there's a level of simplicity to it. Whereas, you know, cards have this kind of level of chaos to them, but due to their countless variables, there's a lot of room for creativity and different plots. It also allows you to hide a card in plain sight, right? If I take a card, show it face up, show it to you as three diamonds, but then turn it face down on the top of the deck, you actually don't know that it's still face down on the top of the deck. The uniform yeah. backs is a kind of natural concealing uh, quality of, of cards, which is you know heavily used and is uh, one of the most dominant principles in card magic. This is something that doesn't exist in coin magic, in coins, if you want to hide a coin here, you have it palmed and mm -hmm. you have to look natural. You yeah. can't have too much tension. You can't have unnatural moments where that's going to draw attention to where the coin may actually be. Um, because, you know, somebody might just assume that it's there. It's not, you know, it's not hidden as well as in a deck of cards. So, I discovered in my time doing card magic and coin magic simultaneously that my card magic got better reaction than my coin magic, like a lot of magicians experience. And I didn't quite understand why this was. Mm -hmm. And I started looking at my own work, started observing these moments with spectators where yeah. I would notice their eyes go to a particular hand after a move. And sometimes people glance and glance back. That's just natural. The eyes will follow hand movement. But I'm talking about seeing the tension in their body and know, knowing from there that they, you know, they spotted something, maybe not, you know, a flash, but just the, uh, the tension or the unnaturalness of a move. I see their posture change. They go from being relaxed to kind of leaning in, facial expression changes. Mm -hmm maybe a little bit skeptical. And I would notice that's when I'd start to lose them. Uh, I didn't have them in the presentation and of it all anymore. They were focusing on method at that point. Mm -hmm. And that's a great thing to learn how to recognize in your spectators in general is like when they start thinking in terms of method rather than 
kind of enjoying the presentation. And so I would become really aware of this kind of cat and mouse game that would occur. And after watching these moments, you go, what moves is it? And it's like, oh, it's, it's this move. It's when I do a retention banish. It's when I do, you know, this action, whatever it may be. And then just looking at those actions so carefully, you know, going to this classic principle people say, like, what would it really look like if you put the coin in the other hand? And then trying mm -hmm. to mimic that. And I realized that pretty much no one has, it, at the time, no one had done a retention vanish that I felt like actually looked the same way of somebody putting a coin in the hand. Okay. Uh, even David Roth had his first finger and knuckle pop up into view, these very exaggerated um, finger motions that, you know, were kind of major tells. And not every spectator is going to pick up on that, but but some will. And even the ones who don't, I think it does very subtly kind of dampen the um, the impact of our magic. That these slightly awkward moments, they build up. And as there's more of these moments in a routine, something just doesn't feel right to the spectator. Cognitively, they might not, you know, think through the process and go, oh, that was unnatural. Something happened here necessarily. But something doesn't quite feel right. It feels like something is happening that shouldn't be happening. And that's not what our magic is supposed to express. It's supposed to express that the feels like the coin really goes in the hand. Not like, oh, something happened, but I don't know what. That's still amazing. That's not quite magic. That's like a, a puzzle that they're bewildered by, right? They need to be so convinced. And that moment of being having complete conviction that you actually place a coin in the hand, not that they conceptually think about this, but, you know, that... They never questioned it in the first place. I found came down to the subtlety of these moves, naturalness and proper motivation, tension and relaxation, these principles. And these principles then went on to govern the way that I created coin magic. I created a lot of new slights to make them look more natural. And yeah, so that's kind of where I kind of started with coin magic, but I was doing card magic at the same time as my coin magic started to get better reactions and then eventually better reactions than my card magic. I started to look at my card magic and go, okay, what, what's maybe not the most motivated here. So a lot of people say, oh, this stuff doesn't matter. You, it's, you do these things on the offbeat, you misdirect people don't, these things don't make that big of a difference. Spectators don't notice it. And, but that's not my experience at all. My experience was as I worked on these things and as my technique became smoother and more and more natural, my impact that I had on my spectators was greater. There's also a reason why people will look at, you know, like some of the best, most talented carmish goes, wow, they're amazing. Sometimes they're doing the same slides that a lot of other people are doing, but they're so natural. Everything's so properly motivated that you don't know when a move occurred. You know, Christian Grace is a great example of someone who really focuses on proper motivation. He has such impactful magic. You know, uh, Andrew Frost, another one who's so good at naturalness, proper motivation, having that very natural feel to things. And his magic looks amazing. And he's fooling me with things that, like, I know all the slights, you know? So it's not that they're doing some kind of slights that no one else is doing. It's that they have this refinement in their movements to make everything look natural. They don't build too many moments of suspicion that give you this kind of questioning feeling you feel like you just saw what you saw you know that things happened as they were supposed to happen there's nothing to question there's nothing to there's no no spot to poke at in a way 
So I started doing the same with my own card magic and looking at this and um, yeah, and it's had a huge impact. So now I teach a lot on proper motivation and I teach a lot more on naturalness, intention, relaxation, because though maybe these are not always the most beginner principles, they're essential to start working on early enough um, and just getting a feel for, you know, so that as you progress with your slights, you're also starting to work these things in because it really does have an impact. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. So just to recap or summarize at least kind of what I heard. <laughs> um, so as a, as a coin magician, you kind of learn from day one that naturalness, proper motivation, attention uh, and relaxation, these things are absolutely key to having your coin magic hit. And that's because as a coin magician, there's almost less room for error because there's just, you know, there's one coin and it's very, very just like, everything revolves around this one coin it's is it in your hand or is it not in your hand it's just not as much kind of like slack in the routine whereas as mm -hmm. uh, in card magic sometimes it's there's so much cover and there's so much kind of like other ways that you can um create and construct routines that you can kind of hide beneath the cover of having sort of that easier ground to not there's less of a need to immediately refine those finer yeah. skills of like naturalness motivation and so it's easier to get away with not having those in card magic. But right. because you are trained in that kind of harder training ground, some might say, of coin magic, where you just can't mm -hmm. survive without that, then when you turn to card magic, you realize, oh, if I apply these same techniques to card magic, it's just going to take me you know, to the next level. That's kind of yeah. what I heard. Yeah. And I mean, simply put, if you, know, if you control a spectator's card to, top the, to the top of the deck, they are staring at it, and they don't know they're staring at it. Cards literally hide in plain sight. You don't need to conceal them. You know, the majority of the time, you never need to conceal cards. With coins, you're constantly concealing coins. Yeah. You know, you're constantly hiding yeah. them. Cards hide themselves. That's what it really kind of comes down to in the, the difference of those. Yeah. Perfect. But yes, yes. You summarized. Yeah. Cool. So... Okay, so there's a lot of directions we could, we could take with this. Um, I just wanted to pull out one other thing you said and just sort of talk about it a little bit more because I think it's such a cool key idea. Um, and that was you talking about, you know, asking yourself the question, what would this move look like if I really did it? This mm -hmm. idea is something that, as simple as it sounds, I had not thought about it a lot until quite recently, honestly. Um, and it was something I heard from Andrew Frost. It was you're not going to believe me if I say this, but it was actually a podcast Jacob did with Andrew Frost. And I, I was just listening to it because I was like, oh, I missed this one. I want to catch up. Um, and he talked in there about how when he's practicing card magic, one of the things he'll do is he'll just film himself doing, I don't know, uh, dealing a card to the table, you know, 20 times. Then he'll film yeah. himself in the second deal. Then he'll just watch them side by side. And he's like, what am I doing differently when I do the move than when I do it for real? And he's just yeah. constantly trying to narrow that gap. Sounds like a very that's similar great. thing to what you were talking about. Absolutely. And that's such a wonderful way to do it is film it and film both of them and be able to look at them both objectively rather than looking at one of them subjectively while you're doing it and looking at the other objectively, which is not going to help you really kind of uh, see their similarities and differences. So yeah, filming both, I think, is essential. That's a really awesome tip from Andrew. Yeah. 
Um, so if we can get a little more granular, um, I'm kind of wondering, like, when you came back to card magic, what were some of the moves? Or and I think it's interesting what you said, like, because it kind of reminds you like the whole like story of Divernon, right? When he, like first did like the double lift on his like fellow magicians, but he just made it look more natural, and therefore like it fooled them. <laughs> you know, like people just mm-hmm. hadn't seen it done in that way. In a similar way, I guess I'm just trying to ask, like, in a, in a granular way, when you came back to car magic, were there certain moves, like flourishes, slights that you were kind of like, well, that's not natural, and we're kind of working to make yeah. it more natural? Yeah, I think one of the big things Divernon did, as you often hear, was it Divernon who said it's it's not a brick, it's a playing card? You know, because people would flip over playing <laughs> cards. Like, it's a brick, this, like, very uh, kind of forced, laborious way of flipping over a card. I still see so many magicians do that. I, I see some magicians who've been performing for, you know, decades who are well known in the community do that still. They follow they're holding the card until it's flat. And it's like you gotta let go of it. You know, it's it's a playing card. It's light. You you should handle it like such. As a you start to turn the card over and once it's about halfway you let it fall the rest. You know, that's that's kind of essential with the a good double lift and you know divern top that um i believe as that was his thing the the brick thing which i always thought was funny but there's a lot of stuff like that and i, I mean we could just jump in and talk about the pass um yeah it's the pass is one of these oh it's it's like so i have a couple thoughts on the pass one you don't need Please. one uh that's <laughs> the biggest oh. one uh, <laughs> um it's it's a that's not true. There are many times there are times you need a pass. For most card controls, though, if you're just controlling a card to the top, I don't know that you necessarily need a pass. You know, like uh, for example, you know, a breather card is an amazing, amazing tool. You know, if you have a bottom cutting breather, and you you know, let's say you're dropping packets on the table at a time like this. I know you can't see, but you have to hear, right? You're driving chunks and the spectator says stop, right? And you have your breather card on the bottom of the pack in your left hand. They place their card on this pile that's been dealt onto the table. And as you go to pull more cards off of the deck, you're pulling that breather off with them so that that breather goes directly on top of their card as you continue dropping packs. So now you've placed the breather card on top of their card. You have this messy looking thing on the table. They got to decide exactly where it went. And you can now tell them, hey, square up that pack, make it nice and neat. So they square it, which is nice. And then you tell them, give it a cut. And the majority of the time, you know, people tend to cut the breather because that's the point of a breather. And they'll cut their card to the top. If they don't, it's okay. The second you take this deck back, it feels like you've lost control of that card. The cards have been on the table. They squared them up. They cut them. Now you can just glimpse the bottom card. Is that your face cutting breather? Yes. Then their card's on top. If not, you just do a Charlier cut to the breather and you're, that's it. Their card is now on top. It's one of the easiest card controls. But there's many situations in card magic, and I mean a lot actually, um, where you need to keep the deck in its particular order, and that's when a pass is extremely useful, right? Yeah. Or sometimes you are needing to actually get a cut in, in in the in terms of 
the construction of the effect and a pass is extremely useful. So passes do matter, passes are very important, but in terms of a just specific card control, if it's just a card control, majority of the time you don't need a pass. So yeah. why do I say this? Most passes look so extremely laborious. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, if you hand a spectator two packs of cards or like two um, uh, stacks of cards, it's one deck. But, uh, you know, the deck cut in two. You Not cut in two with like, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> two halves. Yeah. So you have two stacks of cards. That's a very interesting to... approach to card magic. <laughs> <laughs> Place those packs together and square it up. It takes them less than two seconds. I, I would argue almost less than one, right? To take two packs, place them together, and make sure they're square so there's no extra edges sticking out. But if you see magicians add a pack together and then do a classic pass or a Herman pass even, their hands are together for almost three times as long as it takes a spectator to add two packs together. There's so much tension there, so much unnecessary tension there. And that's suspicious for something that's supposed to be a profoundly simple action. I mean, I could, I, I'm sure I could hand a five-year-old two packs of cards, tell them, put them on top of each other and make sure they're square and they can do it faster than a magician doing a classic pass. There are some exceptions. I know, well, I know of one person who can do a classic pass as fast as a spectator can add two packs together and make it look like nothing happened. But that's really freaking hard. Another time, one yeah. and two. I don't think the majority of us will ever get to yeah. that skill level. Yeah. I know I will. I'll never get there. Not with the classic pass, at least. So there's ways to motivate with the hands being together longer, right? And this sort of proper motivation comes into play here is that you can dribble the cards, right? So that they're kind of messy in the hands, right? You have this kind of mess in your hands, and now they have to be squared up. It takes a little bit longer to square that up than just adding two packs together. But the second they're squared up, your hands should come away. And this is the other problem with classic pass. A lot of people square and then classic pass. But ideally, and I've seen some people who actually do this really well, is your classic passing while the deck is still kind of a mess, or even Herman passing while the deck's still kind of a mess, so that as the deck is fully getting squared up all its sides all the extra cards are pushed in the hands can come away immediately um so that's one thing in terms of proper motivation now i had to address something i'm going to backtrack just a little bit here because one thing i hear so many magicians say is oh the classic pass and an offbeat move you know you add the packs together you keep your break and you you wait until there's an offbeat and then you do the classic pass sure that's fine you're going to misdirect a lot of people maybe maybe depending on how good your misdirection is. But when your hands come together, that implies an action is taking place and that type of tension grabs a spectator's attention. Tension creates attention. And then your hands nice. are there for as long as they are. You know, it's just an unnecessary action. Why are your hands coming together? Did they have a purpose for coming together? From the spectator's point of view, no. So there must be a hidden purpose, right? That's the problem with improper motivation. So yeah, maybe you could do it on the offbeat, but some people are gonna notice and it's gonna feel weird because your hands came together for absolutely no reason at all. 
Maybe you're grabbing the deck and you're putting it on the table. That's great. That can work as proper motivation for the hands coming together. But you still, even in that situation, the deck's already squared. Your hand should touch that deck and immediately come away. It doesn't make sense for the hands to linger and be right on top of each other for that long if you're just passing a deck from one hand to the other. That in itself looks super suspicious. So that whole that whole idea of doing the classic pass as you're tabling the cards, that doesn't work. No one, no one holds two hands on a deck of cards that long. It's crazy. It's it's just not natural looking. And even with misdirection, like it's passable, but it's not as good as it can be. And we should strive for our magic to be as good as it can be. So don't do a pass then. There's so many other ways that you can control a card, make it feel messy, have a breather card. You know, you can have a breather in there, hand, place the deck on the table and tell the spectator, oh, also cut the cards for me. Pick up the deck, square it up, check the bottom, see if the breather's there so you know they cut their cards to the top. If not, place a, hand it to someone else, say, hey, you cut the cards too. You know, <laughs> you can literally get people to cut it to the breather and get your card to the top for you. And it's going to be a more convincing effect, right? So sometimes there's time for a pass, sometimes there's not. I just wanted to go backtrack a little bit, though, and talk about the classic pass and some of the excuses I hear for it. Um, I talked about uh, some of the proper motivating things, like having a mess, like a really unsquared up deck and doing the pass as the cards are messed up so that by the time you're finished squaring up, the hands can immediately come away. Um, and yeah, those are some options for making the pass cleaner. Mm-hmm. But I would argue that the classic pass is a move that is insanely hard to make look good, and there are better passes out there. Um, the spread pass is an amazing one because you're closing up a spread. It takes time to close up a spread and square up the mess. It really motivates the whole action. It's a it's a good pass. Sometimes you can't do that though, right? Maybe you got face up cards in the middle. Um, Maybe it has to do with a triumph routine where they're not supposed to see that the cards are already, uh, you know, not mixed. So there's situations where that doesn't apply and you need to do a pass. So I, I've created, I created my own pass. Um, it's called the carousel pass. And it's one that I really, uh, really love. Um, it looks kind of like the Hollingworth pass, but a lot more natural and a lot faster. So the deck is dribbled, the pack is dribbled upon the other one, it's messy, and you square up the short end of the deck, and as you're turning the deck, which squares up the long end of the deck, they see the long end squared up, and then the deck comes back into mechanics grip, and the hands immediately come away the second the squaring action is completed. Uh, Every single moment where the hands are in contact with the deck have very visual, clear, proper motivation. The move looks natural, it's fast, um, and because the move ends immediately as the cards are squared up, you can actually turn uh, the deck face up and do it continuously. So you can get like a kind of continuous color change on it. But yeah, this was a pass that I created called the Carousel Pass. I briefly interrupt this podcast to uh, just share a little uh, self-promotion with you if I could. Um, If you're enjoying what you're listening to right now, um, and you think that maybe you'd enjoy more of our content, uh, please head over to the 
dailymagician.com slash books. There you'll find 24 classic magic books for free and you'll be signed up for our daily emails where you can hear and get more content just like this. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed so far. And uh, like I said, that's the dailymagician.com slash books. Claim 24 classic magic books for free and you'll also uh, be getting daily contact from us with more incredible content just like this. Okay, well, th thanks for the absolute masterclass in the past right there. Um, <laughs> something you said. You <laughs> cut me off. I ramble a lot. So, no, like, no. compartmentalize I, me if you want. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I got anything better to say about the past, so I'm just going to let you do the talking. Um, yeah, a couple, couple of things then, just to sort of pull the attention toward a couple of things. Really like that line, tension creates attention. Is that something you came up with? Did you read that somewhere? That no, like I can't remember thing. where I heard that, but I love it. Yeah, that's really yeah. good. I like that a lot. Um, yeah, and so maybe to recap... I, maybe I did actually because I don't remember even having read it somewhere, or I don't have any recollection where yeah. it came from. But I feel like it. I don't think it's mine. I feel well, like someone said this. Either way. It's good. It's the first yeah, time we heard it. Good one. I so, like it. Uh, <laughs> you said it for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, tension creates attention. Beautiful. Um, to to recap, the pass. Interesting. I think this was an interesting approach because, um, obviously, you know, part of the reason we sat down to record this podcast was because we're really excited about your kind of release of the carousel pass, and so coming in, it was like oh, you know, we'd love to talk about the past and we'd also love to talk about Danny's approach in the past because uh, we think it's beautiful. Uh, but what you did that I think is very smart and just kind of a, a, a good move is starting by telling people, you know, you don't need necessarily another pass. There are other ways to do this. Um, and I think that that is just a great point. And the, the carousel pass who is it for then? So who, yeah. who is the ideal person who's going to pick this up? Right. So you got to look at your routines and look at where is a pass needed? You know, a pass is usually, it's, it's a big slight, you know? Um, it has to be executed really well. It's a very demanding slight. Yeah. It's, it's not a 100% angle proof. You know, no passes. I don't think any pass is 100% angle proof. Um, so it's it's one that you have to be really kind of aware of and execute really well. And they all tend to be fairly technical. And so you should look at your routines and go, is a pass really needed here? Are there other solutions? Um, I don't know why magicians are so afraid of crimps, like breather crimps. And I mean, it's such an unbelievable tool for controlling cards, uh, if it's it's completely invisible, <laughs> you know, and you can let the spectators handle the cards, shuffle them, take them back. Like if you, you know, especially if you crimp the selected card. One of my favorite things to do is I always have a breather card in my deck. One, um, and sometimes just for fun, I'll I'll classic force the breather card on somebody, um, or because the breather if the breather card's in the middle, and you ask them to cut to the deck cut the deck, right? And I usually suggest, like, go cut the deck around half or so, you know? And then, and I say, look at the card you cut to. So they look at it. So I don't see what they cut to. They look at the face. And I say, remember that card, close it back up and shuffle the deck. 
right? Now, I can know if they hit the breather card because what I can do is I can corner crimp or pencil mark a card that is directly under the breather. So when they cut about half the pack, I'm looking at the card um, that's on the table, whereas they're looking at the one under the pack they just lifted that's in their hand. So I can see the one on the table. It doesn't have the pencil mark or does it have a corner crimp if I want to do a spontaneous one. And if so, then I know they cut to the breather. I can say, you know, put the packs together, shuffle them up as to your heart's content, um, place the deck on the table, give it a cut. You know, a lot of times people will cut that card uh, to the bottom if it's a face um, cutting breather. It's a back cutting breather to the top, but I don't use a back cutting breather because uh, we show the backs more than we show the faces. And the face, like, uh, it's easier to hide a breather on the face of the deck, especially if you have a really busy card as your breather card. Um, a lot of times in this case, though, when they cut the deck, they'll cut the card to the bottom. And then you can pick up the deck, see that it's there. If not, you do a Charlie A cut to the breather to get it where you need. And now they just, cards completely out of your hand, right? They just picked up a pack, looked at a card, shuffled the packs together, and you instantly have control of their card. You don't have to go find it. You instantly have control of their card. How is that not like the most ideal situation in card matching? I don't know why magicians don't use this and why they work so hard. It's such an easy, direct way to gain control of a spectator's card. Now, this doesn't always work for all, all scenarios, though. Um, but it is something I recommend looking at is like, does your effect, you know, require that the deck stay in a specific order? No, then something like this is wonderful. Does the deck require that they, if the trick does require that the deck stays in a specific order, it's pretty much guaranteed that you're going to have to do a pass or a shift of some sort, right? Um, there's other kinds of, there's some interesting controls out there. There's some, you know, it's just controls the single card to the top and keeps the deck, the, the deck, the stack the same. So those are great. But there's many situations where you're really going to need to use a pass. And maybe it's, let's see, I'm trying to think of a good one. A triumph, it tends to be a really good one. Um, if you need to do, let's see, when do you, what triumphs do you need to do a pass on? Hmm. Maybe not a triumph. It's one that I used to do. Oh, I used to do a collector's routine where, you know, three cards are selected. You have four jacks or whatever. They're your collectors. And you place those jacks on the top of the deck. And one at a time, they vanish until you're at the last card. And those three are, you know, you're just moving the selected cards on top of each jack. So it looks like you just have a deck of cards and the third jack just disappeared. But really, under that top face-down card is a face-up jack. Under that next uh, face-down card is a face-up jack, etc. Right? So, but you want it to look at the end of the effect, like all those jacks found those three cards in the middle of the deck. So the last jack, when you put it on the top of the deck face up, you want to do a pass to make that last jack disappear. All right. This puts the whole stack, this puts all the, that stack of the four jacks and the three selections down into the middle of the deck. So the second that jack disappears, you can table the cards, spread them and show that in the middle of the deck is four face up jacks. And between them are the three selections, right? So a collector's routine is a great example of a situation where for that last card, you really want to pass. 
Because let's say you shift a card above that jack to make it disappear. Now you have to do another do a pass to make that uh <laughs> to get those four jacks down into the middle. Why do two moves when you could just do one good move? So if you have a really solid pass that's visual, most passes you know they you have to do them on the offbeat kind of thing. You know, wouldn't work for the situation. You need a pass that can be visual and can actually work as like a vanish or um, you know, sometimes a change even. So um the carousel pass is one I use for that because it is it is pretty visual and allows me to accomplish that. So it was one that I believe I originally created it for that collector's routine, actually. I can't remember. I think I was using the rotation yeah. of the deck to actually pull the next selected card from the bottom, kind of like a Hollingworth type pass, but a little bit different. But uh, anyways, yeah, I yeah. digress. But, uh, no, but yeah, I... there's situations where you need to keep the deck in its stack. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, well, a couple of things on my mind, I'll try and say them before I forget. Um, so what you're saying is if all you're looking for is a way to maybe control a card to the top, there may well be much better ways to do that than using a pass. However, there are enough instances in which a pass is the best move that it's really worth it for somebody to learn a solid pass. And um, we think we think the carousel pass is a super solid pass, and we would definitely highly recommend that one. Um, in fact, if you are listening to this right now, um, this will be going out kind of around about the middle of May 2023. Um, for the next, I, I don't know, five days, depends when this podcast goes out, um, the Carousel Pass by Danny will actually be available. Do you want to talk about that, Danny? I don't want to steal your thunder. Yeah, so we're, we're making, I'm just releasing it for a limited amount of time. I actually put a lot of, I give a lot of my best stuff to uh, my members. I have many effects and ideas that just make available to Magic Mastery members. And our members, you know, we're all, uh, co-owners of Magic Mastery, and um, I really want to share really good quality magic in the membership that's not available on any of my other projects. But this was a card thing, and I hadn't released a card thing, so I was like, you know, I want to make this available to people outside of the membership, but just for a short amount of time. So. It'll only be live for about a week or so. Um, actually, when you see this, if uh, you know, if you click the link and go to the page, there's a timer on that page. Uh, so you'll see that it's, you know, if you missed it, it'll tell you, sorry, you missed this offer. Um, but if not, you'll see a timer telling you when the offer ends. At that moment, the carousel pass will no longer be available outside of um, a Magic Mastery subscription. So yeah, so for viewers or viewers, I guess that's uh, listeners. For listeners who are listening after um, the period in which this carousel pass was launched, uh, you can still uh, get access to the carousel pass. You just need to go to magicmastery.cc and and sign up for the membership. Yeah, it's it's a really great pass. It's had some really great reactions from the members. I think it's a really awesome thing, Danny, that you're releasing it for this short amount of time. And if people want to get it now is is the only time so if you're interested at all just go have a look at the trailer uh, and see what you think of it make your own decision like danny said if it doesn't fit your repertoire it doesn't fit your repertoire but if it is the sort of thing that you're like oh wow i've really been looking for something like that i think it will it, it does the job better than a lot of the passes that i've seen kind of like danny said 
Um, I think it'll I have, fit your yeah, uh, yeah. So I wanted to fill in one more thing. I just remembered, uh, sorry to cut you off, Jacob. I just remember another scenario where you almost always need a pass. Um, and that's after a second card is selected, right? A card is, uh, you've one card selected, lost in the deck, you control it to the top or bottom, you know, and then a second card selected, you know, you can swing cut the deck, have them place that card on the top with, you know, what was the top with the other selection, not that they know that because the selection is hidden and you do a pass and you're able to maintain both cards on top or, you know, use the same scenario to maintain both cards on bottom. Um, but in multi-selection things, um, especially if you're really squaring up the deck in between selections, a pass can be very helpful. Of course, there's also ships that will shift multiple cards all at once to the top. Um, so there's those scenarios too, but save yeah. that for a different time <laughs> yeah for sure for a different podcast <laughs> um so the carousel pass i think this is just an interesting thing to call out um you mentioned how you designed this sort of as a reaction to like a problem you were trying to solve and i thought i think that i just wanted to kind of zoom in on that because i yeah. think that's a hallmark of like good magic and and good moves is you know, you, you're trying to come up with something, you're working on a routine. There's proper motivation for creating <laughs> yeah. it. And there's proper motivation yeah. for creating it. You, you're coming up on a problem and it's like, I need a way to solve this problem. And then the move kind of emerges as a solution to the problem rather than being what is sometimes the case. And, you know, heck, I, I mean, I've probably done this many times where I'm just sitting down. I'm like, oh, would it be cool if I could take like two cards and move them in this way? Or like, what happens if I like drop one pack here and do this? And you just sort of like mm -hmm. be a move. And then you're like, where, how could I use this, you know? sort of you're approaching it i think the better approach is to approach it from the other way where it's like finding those problem spots and then being like how can i design things to solve this and it, it sounds like that's yeah. how the carousel pass came up but i think that in and of itself is a great sort of creative method yeah that's pretty much how i create most things i look for a problem or i look for and then look for a solution um a lot of things uh, i feel like i create most of my magic that way I mean, both ways are great. Sometimes I create a move and then I go, oh, how many different ways can this be used? Can this work as a change? Can it work as a vanish? Can it work as a switch? Can it work, at, you know, and just play around with the movement and how it, you know, because if you really look at something, a lot of times you've, all you've discovered is a particular way in which to move an object through or through the fingers, around the fingers, or through another object, around another object in a way that is particularly efficient. You know, maybe it does it with minimal motion or whatever. So then it's just a matter of how does, well, does this movement work with other movements? Um, having a kind of primal look at your effect in that way of like understanding exactly what is a movement, what is a slight and breaking down slights as particular movements and understanding their movements within the context of space, um, like how it moves around another object. And is it then dependent upon how it moves around that particular object or would it work around a differently shaped object, etc.? So thinking of things as uh, shapes and movements within space is uh, a way that I find is really helpful in terms of um, creating moves and you could totally see that in the carousel pass because it's it is such a fun move to practice the grip is really interesting i found a particularly interesting way to uh <laughs> uh 
uh, I created a very interesting movement with the deck of cards. And it started with this movement. And I, I don't want to say too much because it would give it away, but you'll know the movement when you see it. Because you go, oh, that's interesting. And I thought, oh, that's fascinating. That allows this object to move around this object in a new way. And that just naturally uh, led to the creation of the carousel pass. It actually started with this one movement that happens in mechanic script. And I was like, oh, that's a new way to move a deck. That's, that's weird. What can be done with this movement? And then exploring that movement with the movements of my hands, wrist, rotation, its movement around the other pack of cards, and, you know, the carousel that passed then came to be. So, yeah, sometimes it's solving a problem, and sometimes it's also the exploration of an idea and the different ways that it can interact with its own, its own little uh, micro uh, environment. <laughs> Oh, nicely said. I, I, it's it's very interesting. I I love the way that you think about magic. I mean, I, I was sitting here right now, and I was just I was honestly just thinking, like, man, I hope like I hope enough of like if I spend enough time around Danny, this will like start to like seep into me more and more. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I I hope when I'm at a convention in like ten years, I'll be like talking about like how I like made my move interact with the environment differently based on micro movements. You know, I don't think I'm quite there, <laughs> but I hope that I will be. <laughs> so I appreciate you going into yeah. all your thinking on it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's just a matter of, you know, mindfulness. Everything comes down to mindfulness. The more attentiveness you have towards something, like, be careful of your conceptual understandings because conceptual understandings are limited. They're a fixed reference point. So if you understand something as, oh, that's a pass, that's a this, that's a that, that's fine, you know, but also be aware of the felt sensation of it. It's just the shape of it, the way it moves within space. Try to look at things from different angles. Be aware of perception of an object and how you perceive that object, because the way you perceive that object will dictate the way that you use that object. So it's get out of the conceptual labeling of a movement or a slight and really observe it. Look at it like looking for the first time, you know, what was it like when somebody first created this concept kind of thing? How, what could the exploration have possibly been like? Could be an interesting exercise even. And that'll really lend itself to uh, creativity. So applying that kind of mindfulness and getting out of fixed ways of looking. Yeah. I think that's something that like me and Benji have always like thought about, like from the first podcast that we talked about with you, um, where you talked a lot about like not using the rational mind uh, in like, or not always using the rational mind in in creation. Uh, I think that yeah, is, well, that's a little is, different. I'm actually in this sense, I'm saying use the rational mind, just don't use it the conceptual mind, um, a rational non-conceptual mind. You know, you're analyzing but not getting fixated on concepts. Right. This is a subtle thing. Yeah, that is really subtle. I'm, I'm saying right because I, I honestly yeah, don't know. <laughs> the non-rational form of creativity is just spontaneous play. It's not analysis. It's just this kind of spontaneous um, playfulness that allows for new ideas because you're not coming from any kind of um, building block of previous knowledge. You're just exploring and playing and allowing for kind of accidents to occur. 
or using your imagination is a, a way to kind of explore things that don't necess aren't necessarily possible. But because of your imagination, you start to think in ways that are kind of not so rational or outside of um, logic or physics. And then that might inspire a new way of thinking. So when we tend to think from our previous knowledge, from our current knowledge, that there's only so many ways in which those building blocks of knowledge can be stacked upon each other to create a new idea. And we've been recycling our knowledge for so long that, you know, we've we've exhausted many combinations. So to let go of rational thinking um, can help for spontaneous creativity. In this case, I'm arguing that we're using analysis, but at the same time, we're letting go of our previous knowledge of something so that we may see it in a new way. Mm. Okay, that actually, that makes sense. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for, for going in and explaining it. Yeah, um, <laughs> I feel uh, kind of dirty, like <clears throat> just moving away from what you just said, because like it's, it's, it's really yeah, deep. Okay, but, yeah. It, but yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, like, if, if I can summarize and kind of close things out. Um, I mean, I'm not even going to try and summarize, but in, t in terms of just like the movie we created here, the Carousel Festival, people should know. What I found really interesting is it comes, I think it's really interesting how you talk about proper motivation in your performance, but that's a principle that you've also taken into creation. <laughs> it's like there needs to be proper motivation yeah. for the move, and there needs to be proper motivation for creating the move. <laughs> and I, yeah. I really see that with the carousel pass, you know, and all of these instances you've talked about. I think you've done a really amazing job of deep diving into the pass, of deep diving into card managing in, in general with your overall philosophy. And I think I can really see where the carousel pass come from comes from and why it is needed in performances to just get really specific with people outside of kind of like the philosophy around it if you want to go get it if you're listening to this podcast while it's available head over to uh, danningoldsmith.com slash carousel dash pass right uh, it's actually link. just slash it's just slash carousel danningoldsmith.com slash carousel because uh, this won't be available on the front of my site. The only way is through a link or if you type it directly into the browser. It's, it's a bit okay. secret. Keep it secret. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I guess to get really specific, <clears throat> dannygoldsmith.com slash carousel. That's what you need to put in if you, you want to get it. Yeah, dannygoldsmithmagic.com slash carousel. Sorry. Carousel. <laughs> Carousel yeah. is spelled C-A-R-O-U-S-E-L. Of course, you could Google that, but I figured it's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Um, and obviously, we can make it even easier for you if you're getting this from, like, from one of our emails. Just head over to the email, look at the link there. If you miss the window, uh, head, just Google Magic Mastery or type in magicmastery.cc and you can sign up for the membership there if you're still interested in learning this pass and a ton of other great material from Danny, ourselves, Stephen, and other uh, fantastic contributors. Um, but yeah, I think we'll, we'll close it out there. Thank you so much, Danny, for joining us on this yeah, deep dive. I definitely learned a lot. Uh, is there anything else that you want to say before we, we uh, end things? No, this was fun. It was, it was nice to like, you know, you know, sometimes you understand more about what you know when you speak it, because then you yeah. get to see it from a lot. Like, like, you know, I argue you know, not getting fixed in a conceptual perspective, but sometimes this stuff is so non-conceptual for me that then when I start to speak it, looking at it from a conceptual lens is kind of insightful because concepts do kind of neatly package things in our brain. 
So it was cool to like actually speak some of this stuff that I experienced around my own creativity. So it's a good experience for myself as well. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. We, we definitely did. <laughs> yep. Loved it. All right. Cool. We'll close it up there. <laughs> All right. Later.